Part two, chapter one of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter one. Yonville l'Abbaye, so called from an old Capuchin abbey of which not even the ruins remain, is a market town twenty-four miles from Rouen between the Abbeville and Beauvais roads, at the foot of a valley watered by the Rieur, a little river that runs into the Andelle after turning three water-mills near its mouth, where there are a few trout that the lads amuse themselves by fishing for on Sundays. We leave the high road at La Boissière and keep straight on to the top of the Lure Hill, whence the valley is seen. The river that runs through it makes of it, as it were, two regions with distinct physiognomies. All on the left is pasture-land, all on the right, arable. The meadow stretches under a bulge of low hills to join at the back with the pasture-land of the Bray country, while on the eastern side the plain, gently rising, broadens out, showing, as far as the eye can follow, its blond cornfields. The water, flowing by the grass, divides with a white line the colour of the roads and of the plains, and the country is like a great unfolded mantle with a green velvet cape bordered with a fringe of silver. Before us, on the verge of the horizon, lie the oaks of the forest of Argueille, with the steeps of the Saint-Jean hills scarred from top to bottom with red irregular lines. They are rain-tracks, and these brick-tones, standing out in narrow streaks against the grey colour of the mountain, are due to the quantity of iron springs that flow beyond in the neighbouring country. Here we are, on the confines of Normandy, Picardy, and the Ile de France, a bastard land whose language is without accent, and its landscape is without character. It is there that they make the worst Neufchatel cheeses of all the arrondissement, and, on the other hand, farming is costly because so much manure is needed to enrich this friable soil full of sand and flints. Up to 1835 there was no practicable road for getting to Yonville, but about this time a crossroad was made which joins that of Abbeville to that of Amiens, and is occasionally used by the Rouen wagoners on their way to Flanders. Yonville l'Abbaye has remained stationary in spite of its new outlet. Instead of improving the soil, they persist in keeping up the pasture lands, however depreciated they may be in value, and the lazy borough, growing away from the plain, has naturally spread riverwards. It is seen from afar sprawling along the banks like a cowherd taking a siesta by the waterside. At the foot of the hill beyond the bridge begins a roadway, planted with young aspens, that leads in a straight line to the first houses in the place. These, fenced in by hedges, are in the middle of courtyards full of straggling buildings, wine-presses, cart-sheds and distilleries scattered under thick trees, with ladders, poles or scythes hung on to the branches. The thatched roofs, like fur caps drawn over eyes, reach down over about a third of the low windows, whose coarse convex glasses have knots in the middle like the bottoms of bottles. Against the plaster wall, diagonally crossed by black joists, a meagre pear tree sometimes leans, and the ground floors have at their door a small swing gate to keep out the chicks that come pilfering crumbs of bread steeped in cider on the threshold. But the courtyards grow narrower, the houses closer together, and the fences disappear. 
A bundle of fern swings under a window from the end of a broomstick. There is a blacksmith's forge and then a wheelwright's, with two or three new carts outside that partly block the way. Then, across an open space, appears a white house beyond a grass mound, ornamented by a cupid, his finger on his lips. Two brass vases are at each end of a flight of steps. Scutcheons blaze upon the door. It is the notary's house, and the finest in the place. The church is on the other side of the street, twenty paces further down, at the entrance of the square. The little cemetery that surrounds it, closed in by a wall breast high, is so full of graves that the old stones, level with the ground, form a continuous pavement on which the grass of itself has marked out regular green squares. The church was rebuilt during the last years of the reign of Charles X. The wooden roof is beginning to rot from the top, and here and there has black hollows in its blue colour. Over the door where the organ should be is a loft for the men, with a spiral staircase that reverberates under their wooden shoes. The daylight coming through the plain glass windows falls obliquely upon the pews ranged along the walls, which are adorned here and there with a straw mat bearing beneath it the words in large letters, Mr. So-and-so's pew. Farther on, at a spot where the building narrows, the confessional forms a pendant to a statuette of the Virgin, clothed in a satin robe, quaffed with a tall veil sprinkled with silver stars and with red cheeks like an idol of the Sandwich Islands. And finally, a copy of The Holy Family, presented by the Minister of the Interior, overlooking the high altar between four candlesticks, closes in the perspective. The choir stalls of deal wood have been left unpainted. The market, that is to say, a tiled roof supported by some twenty posts, occupies of itself about half the public square of Yonville. The town hall, constructed from the designs of a Paris architect, is a sort of Greek temple that forms the corner next to the chemist's shop. On the ground floor are three ionic columns, and on the first floor a semicircular gallery, while the dome that crowns it is occupied by a Gallic cock, resting one foot upon the chart and holding in the other the scales of justice. But that which most attracts the eye is opposite the Lion d'Or Inn, the chemist shop of Monsieur Homais. In the evening, especially, its argand lamp is lit up, and the red and green jars that embellish his shop front throw far across the street their two streams of colour. Then across them, as if in Bengal lights, is seen the shadow of the chemist leaning over his desk. His house from top to bottom is placarded with inscriptions written in large hand, round hand, printed hand. Vichy, seltzer, barrage waters, blood purifiers, raspai a patent medicine, Arabian rakuhu, dasse lozenges, regno paste, trusses, baths, hygienic chocolate, etc. And the signboard, which takes up all the breadth of the shop, bears in gold letters, Homme, chemist. Then, at the back of the shop, behind the great scales fixed to the counter, the word laboratory appears on a scroll above a glass door, which about halfway up once more repeats Homme in gold letters on a black ground. Beyond this, there is nothing to see at Yonville. The street, the only one, a gunshot in length, and flanked by a few shops on either side, stops short at the turn of the high road. 
If it is left on the right hand and the foot of the Saint-Jean hills followed, the cemetery is soon reached. At the time of the cholera, in order to enlarge this, a piece of wall was pulled down and three acres of land by its side purchased. But all the new portion is almost tenantless. The tombs, as heretofore, continue to crowd together towards the gate. The keeper, who is at once gravedigger and church beadle, thus making a double profit out of the parish corpses, has taken advantage of the unused plot of ground to plant potatoes there. From year to year, however, his small field grows smaller, and when there is an epidemic, he does not know whether to rejoice at the deaths or regret the burials. You live on the dead, lesti boudoir, the curé at last said to him one day. This grim remark made him reflect. It checked him for some time. But to this day he carries on the cultivation of his little tubers, and even maintains stoutly that they grow naturally. Since the events about to be narrated, nothing in fact has changed at Yonville. The tin trickler flag still swings at the top of the church steeple, the two chintz streamers still flutter in the wind from the linen drapers, the chemist fetuses, like lumps of white amadou, rot more and more in their turbid alcohol, and above the big door of the inn the old golden lion, faded by rain, still shows passers-by its poodle mane. On the evening, when the Bovaries were to arrive at Yonville, widow Le Francois, the landlady of this inn, was so very busy that she sweated great drops as she moved her saucepans. Tomorrow was market day. The meat had to be cut beforehand, the fowls drawn, the soup and coffee made. Moreover, she had the boarder's meal to see to, and that of the doctor, his wife and their servant. The billiard room was echoing with bursts of laughter. Three millers in a small parlour were calling for brandy. The wood was blazing, the brazen pan was hissing, and on the long kitchen table, amid the quarters of raw mutton, rose piles of plates that rattled with the shaking of the block on which spinach was being chopped. From the poultry yard was heard the screaming of the fowls, whom the servant was chasing in order to wring their necks. A man slightly marked with smallpox, in green leather slippers and wearing a velvet cap with a gold tassel, was warming his back at the chimney. His face expressed nothing but self-satisfaction, and he appeared to take life as calmly as the goldfinch suspended over his head in its wicker cage. This was the chemist. Artemis shouted the landlady. "'Chop some wood! Fill the water bottles! Bring some brandy! Look sharp!' If only I knew what dessert to offer the guests you are expecting. Good heavens, those furniture movers are beginning their racket in the billiard room again, and their van has been left before the front door. The hirondelle might run into it when it draws up. Call Polite and tell him to put it up. Only think, Monsieur Homais, that since morning they have had about fifteen games and drunk eight jars of cider. While they'll tear my cloth for me, she went on, looking at them from a distance, her strainer in her hand. That wouldn't be much of a loss, replied Monsieur Homais. You would buy another. Another billiard table, exclaimed the widow. Since that one is coming to pieces, Madame Le Francois, I tell you again, you are doing yourself harm, much harm. And besides, players now want narrow pockets and heavy cues. Hazards aren't played now. Everything is changed. One must keep pace with the times. Just look at Tellier. The hostess reddened with vexation. 
the chemist went on. You may say what you like, his table is better than yours, and if one were to think, for example, of getting up a patriotic pool for Poland, or the sufferers from the Lyon floods... It isn't beggars like him that'll frighten us, interrupted the landlady, shrugging her fat shoulders. Come, come, Monsieur Homais, as long as the lion door exists, people will come to it. We've feathered our nest, while one of these days you'll find the Café Francois closed with a big placard on the shutters. Change my billiard table, she went on, speaking to herself. The table that comes in so handy for folding the washing, and on which in the hunting season I have slept six visitors, but that dawdler, Hive, doesn't come. Are you waiting for him for your gentleman's dinner? Wait for him? And what about Monsieur Binet? As the clock strikes six, you'll see him come in, for he hasn't his equal under the sun for punctuality. He must always have his seat in the small parlour. He'd rather die than dine anywhere else. And so squeamish as he is, and so particular about the cider. Not like Monsieur Léon. He sometimes comes at seven or even half past, and he doesn't so much as look at what he eats. Such a nice young man. Never speaks a rough word. Well, you see, there's a great difference between an educated man and an old carabineer who is now a tax collector. Six o'clock struck. Binet came in. He wore a blue frock coat, falling in a straight line round his thin body, and his leather cap, with its lappets knotted over the top of his head with string, showed under the turned-up peak a bold forehead, flattened by the constant wearing of a helmet. He wore a black cloth waistcoat, a hair collar, grey trousers, and all the year round well-blacked boots that had two parallel swellings due to the sticking out of his big toes. Not a hair stood out from the regular line of fair whiskers, which, encircling his jaws, framed, after the fashion of a garden border, his long, wan face, whose eyes were small and the nose hooked. Clever at all games of cards, a good hunter, and writing a fine hand, he had at home a lathe, and amused himself by turning napkin rings, with which he filled up his house, with the jealousy of an artist and the egotism of a bourgeois. He went to the small parlour, but the three millers had got out first, and during the whole time necessary for laying the cloth, Binet remained silent in his place near the stove. Then he shut the door and took off his cap in his usual way. "'It isn't with saying civil things that he'll wear out his tongue,' said the chemist, as soon as he was alone with the landlady. "'He never talks more,' she replied. Last week two travellers in the cloth line were here, such clever chaps, who told such jokes in the evening that I fairly cried with laughing, and he stood there like a dab fish and never said a word. Yes, observed the chemist, no imagination, no sallies, nothing that makes the society man. Yet they say he has parts, objected the landlady. Parts, replied Monsieur Hamet, he! Arts. In his own line, it is possible, he added in a calmer tone. And he went on. Ah, that a merchant who has a large connection, a jurisconsult, a doctor, a chemist, should be thus absent-minded that they should become whimsical or even peevish, I can understand. Such cases are cited in history. But at least it is because they are thinking of something. Myself, for example... How often has it happened to me to look on the bureau for my pen to write a label, and to find, after all, that I had put it behind my ear? Madame Lefrancois just then went to the door to see if the hirondelle were not coming. She started. 
a man dressed in black suddenly came into the kitchen. By the last gleam of the twilight one could see that his face was rubicund and his form athletic. "'What can I do for you, Monsieur le Curé?' asked the landlady, as she reached down from the chimney one of the copper candlesticks placed with their candles in a row. "'Will you take something? A thimble full of cassie? A glass of wine?' The priest declined very politely. He had come for his umbrella that he had forgotten the other day at the Ernemont Convent, and after asking Madame Lefrancois to have it sent to him at the presbytery in the evening, he left for the church, from which the Angelus was ringing. When the chemist no longer heard the noise of his boots along the square, he thought the priest's behaviour just now very unbecoming. This refusal to take any refreshment seemed to him the most odious hypocrisy. All priests tippled on the sly and were trying to bring back the days of the tithe. The landlady took up the defence of her curé. Besides, he could double up four men like you over his knees. Last year he helped our people to bring in the straw. He carried as many as six trusses at once. He is so strong. Bravo! said the chemist. Now just send your daughters to confess to fellows with such a temperament. Ay, if I were the government, I'd have the priest bled once a month. Yes, Madame Lafrancois, every month. A good phlebotomy in the interests of the police and morals. Be quiet, Monsieur Humay. You are an infidel. You've no religion. The chemist answered, I have a religion, my religion, and I even have more than all these others with their mummeries and their juggling. I adore God, on the contrary. I believe in the supreme being, in a creator, whatever he may be. I care little who has placed us here below to fulfil our duties as citizens and fathers of families, but I don't need to go to church to kiss silver plates and fatten out of my pocket a lot of good-for-nothings who live better than we do. For one can know him as well in a wood, in a field, or even contemplating the eternal vault like the ancients. My God, mine is the God of Socrates, of Franklin, of Voltaire, and of Beranger. I am for the profession of faith of the Savoyard vicar, and the immortal principles of eighty-nine. And I can't admit of an old boy of a god who takes walks in his garden with a cane in his hand, who lodges his friends in the belly of whales, dies uttering a cry, and rises again at the end of three days, things absurd in themselves and completely opposed, moreover, to all physical laws, which prove to us, by the way, that priests have always wallowed in turpid ignorance in which they would fain engulf the people with them. He ceased, looking round for an audience, for, in his bubbling over, the chemist had for a moment fancied himself in the midst of the town council. But the landlady no longer heeded him. She was listening to a distant rolling. One could distinguish the noise of a carriage mingled with the clattering of loose horseshoes that beat against the ground, and at last the hirondelle stopped at the door. It was a yellow box on two large wheels that, reaching to the tilt, prevented travellers from seeing the road and dirtied their shoulders. The small panes of the narrow windows rattled in their sashes when the coach was closed and retained here and there patches of mud amid the old layers of dust that not even storms of rain had altogether washed away. It was drawn by three horses, the first a leader, and when it came downhill its bottom jolted against the ground. Some of the inhabitants of Yonville came out into the square. 
they all spoke at once, asking for news, for explanations, for hampers. Hiver did not know whom to answer. It was he who did the errands of the place in town. He went to the shops and brought back rolls of leather for the shoemaker, old iron for the farrier, a barrel of herrings for his mistress, caps from the milliners, locks from the hairdressers, and all along the road on his return journey he distributed his parcels, which he threw standing upright on his seat and shouting at the top of his voice over the enclosures of the yards. An accident had delayed him. Madame Bovary's greyhound had run across the field. They had whistled for him a quarter of an hour. Hiver had even gone back a mile and a half, expecting every moment to catch sight of her, but it had been necessary to go on. Emma had wept, grown angry. She had accused Charles of this misfortune. Monsieur Leroux, a draper, who happened to be in the coach with her, had tried to console her by a number of examples of lost dogs recognising their masters at the end of long years. One, he said, had been told of who had come back to Paris from Constantinople. Another had gone 150 miles in a straight line and swum four rivers, and his own father had possessed a poodle which, after twelve years of absence, had all of a sudden jumped on his back in the street as he was going to dine in town. End of part two, chapter one.